morning. As we get started this morning, I just wanted to ask a prayer request for the class for this week. And my uh, latest manuscript is going before the final committee at a publisher on Tuesday. And if they vote yes on it, then we should be getting a contract and moving towards publication. So if you would uh, just remember that in prayer this week, I'd appreciate that. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study today. We ask that your spirit and angels be with us. Thank you for the beautiful sunshine we have today. May it be a day of of rejuvenation, a time of fellowship with friends, and may you and your character of love stay central in our hearts and minds. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And for those who are visitors to our class, welcome. And today we are uh, doing lesson number 11 in our quarterly, The Christian Life. And as we look at the class today, it's on stewardship. And in Sunday's lesson, it refers us to the parable of the talents. And I thought maybe we could start by reading that parable together, starting in Matthew 25, 14 to 30, and then explore some questions. And Matthew 25, 14 to 30. Jesus said, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents, so you have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, You entrust me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What are your thoughts about the parable? Well, let's, let's just walk through it, and I want you to answer. I'm going to ask the questions today, and you're going to teach me. How about that? So the question, who's going on a journey? Who's the one who goes on the journey in the parable? Who's the master who goes on the journey? Who is that? Jesus. That's Christ, leaving, going back to heaven, and he's going to come back one day for his children. Um, From where do our talents come? Or should I say, what do the talents represent? Are the talents only representative of money, or are they representative of things besides money? Pardon? Abilities? Resources? It can represent anything we're blessed with, yes? Okay, so with that in mind, from where do our talents come? From God, from Jesus. 
Well, if that's the case, um, does everyone start with the same number of talents? Who decides how many talents a person has? The Holy Spirit decides? And how we use them. Is that right? Okay, somebody, okay, I was wondering. Somebody says genetics. What about genetics? Who decides what genes you have? Parents or the Holy Spirit? So if your genes determine your, your, your talents, then is God giving you your talents? Hmm. Is God in heaven sitting up there at, at every birth determining how many talents each person is going to have? Uh, meeting out talents. Okay, give that guy five, give this guy three, give that guy music, give this guy math. Uh, is that what God's doing from heaven? Great law of heredity, I heard someone say. Now, can God, from heaven, supply abilities and talents? Samson? Didn't he get a special ability? Solomon? Got a special ability? So, certainly God can provide those abilities. Does that mean all of our talents and abilities come in that way? What does it mean that a person, by investment can multiply their talents. What does that mean? Putting time in and studying. Putting time in and studying will? Increase your talents in that yes, that's where you need to go. Does this, so this applies to more than money. Investing more than money. Um, does the parable mean that only those people with few talents are able to bury them. Because only the one with one talent buried. Would we draw that? Or can people with ten talents still bury their ten talents? Yeah. And if a man with the five or the ten talents buries them, um, if, if it was money, if it was only money, then when they dig up the talents, they still have the five or ten talents. Nothing has been gained, but nothing has been lost if you bury money. But what happens if you bury an ability? What happens to that? Can you years later dig that ability up and have lost nothing? No. Or do you lose? You use it or lose it. Yeah, that's right. You use it or lose it. Why is talent taken from one and given to the other? Well, in the parable, it's what it said. The, the master said, take the one and give it to the one with ten. That's what the master said in the parable. Because he was using his. And so not only, is it not true that not only the talents you have when you use them get stronger, but don't you begin to develop new abilities and talents? Yes, that's exactly right. So the more we use, we, and what's happening in the brain is we exercise brain circuits. The brain produces an enzyme which cleaves a particular protein that causes the neural circuits to expand, and they'll branch out, and we connect faster. And the neural circuits which are exercised and used um, get stronger, and those which remain idle and we don't use, the brain actually prunes back and deletes those neurons. And so based on the, the choices you make and the investment of energy and time you put in, your brain will actually rewire itself and you can get stronger in various abilities. This is both for good and for bad. If you engage in unhealthy behaviors, I don't know what we'd call those talents, would we? Boy, he sure can curse up a blue streak. That boy is talented. 
you know, I, you know, but people who practice that type of language speaking, those types of circuits for those types of words actually get stronger. And it's very hard after a while to not say those words. But if they stop speaking words like that over the course of time, those circuits get pruned and it becomes easier not to speak those words. What prevented the man with the one talent from investing his one talent? He was very dumb. He says, I know that you were a hard man. Uh, and you said he knew that. Was the master a hard man? Does God harvest where he does not sow and reap where he does not plant? So, so you're right that he was dumb. You're right that his ideas about his master were obstructing his ability to invest. But the question I have is, were his ideas of his master accurate? See, so what was it that obstructed his ability to invest his talents? Believing lies about his master. Now, uh, just pull a text out of uh, Isaiah, talking about Lucifer in heaven. Isaiah chapter 14, this same thing, coming to believe a lie about God. Notice in in, uh, talking about Lucifer in heaven, starting in verse 12, it says, How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You have said in your heart, now notice this, you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High. Now, aren't we all striving to be more Christ-like? Isn't that a goal? I mean, isn't that what we should have in our heart to be like God? Be like Jesus, this my song. Right? Isn't that what we're striving for? So how is he flawed here for this? Why is the problem here? Notice the characteristics that he thinks God is like. I'm going to ascend. I'm going to promote. I'm going to pump myself up. I'm going to strive for the pinnacle of success. I'm going to push me up. What does Philippians say about Christ? He who was equal with God did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself, going down, down, down. And so he says, I want to be like God, trying to promote himself up, up, up. He got confused about God. He believed in his mind that God was someone who promoted himself. He came to probably convince himself that God is actually like Satan. Yes? Is it also possible that the... um Well, see, that's, I think, part of the distortion. I think that's what he's saying. The master is a hard man. That's his belief about it. The wicked in the end. How are they going to see God in the end when he comes? When Christ comes in the clouds of glory, how will the righteous see him when he comes? The righteous. How will the righteous see him? Will they be afraid of him or will they be running to him? How will the wicked then see him? There you go. They'll be scared of him. Okay? Now, will Jesus be rapidly you know, showing two faces? Smile, frown, smile, frown, 
like this as he's on his throne, or it'll be the same Jesus with the same demeanor and the same revelation of himself, but it's the perspective of the people, their hard attitude and how they see and believe about God, that some, we love him and and, and admire him and, 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 and want to be with him, and others are terrified of him. Because they have so solidified distortions about God into their mind, they don't see him for who he is. I think this is why the investment didn't happen. This servant believed lies about the master. And it impaired his ability to invest. What was the war in heaven over? Lies about God. And what is it that obstructs love from flowing in our hearts? Lies about God. And so I think this parable really teaches that same reality. Jesus has woven it in beautifully that when we believe lies about God, it obstructs the flow of love and obstructs, obstructs us from fulfilling his purpose for our lives. What is it that sets us free? You will know the truth. truth. And the truth will set us free. Somebody read the bottom paragraph for us in Sunday's lesson. It starts out reality number four. Not using your talents is serious business. The word of the servant gets no second chance. It's thrown into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the point of our The symbolic description of the utter nothingness of eternal death. Not using our God is entrusted to us, not only impairs us in this life, but jeopardizes our eternal life. This means that we should be grateful stewards, not something that belongs to the periphery of our Christian experience is the vital characteristic of discipleship. What do you think about that? Why is it serious business to not use one's talents? What does God do to those who refuse to use their talents for him? I hear lots of mumbles. What does God do to those who refuse to use their talents for him? Pardon? In the parable, he takes it away and gives it to somebody else. And that's a parable. What lesson do we draw from that? We lose it. It's a metaphor for what happens. It doesn't have to be imposed. The story doesn't seem like it's imposed, but it's a fact that happens. Okay, did you hear that? It's a metaphor for what happens. It doesn't have to be imposed, but. And there's some seats up front, guys. Come on in. Um, it, it, it doesn't have to be imposed. But see, the reason why it often sounds like it's imposed is who designed the human brain? Who wrote the programming and the the biological instructions for how the human brain works? So, when we don't use our talents for God, and our brain wires itself in unhealthy patterns, forming unhealthy circuits, who designed the brain to be able to do that in the first place? So in one sense, the whole physiological laws of physics, laws of biology, the laws of genetics, all those things, God wrote that, designed that. That's the protocols that life operates upon. So it's happening within the harmony of his design protocols. But that doesn't mean God is the one choosing it. He gives us the freedom to make those choices. Yes? It's our mental habit patterns that make us productive in life. If we had to think about every single thing that we do when we eat and shower and get ready for the day and all that, we wouldn't have the leftover ability to work on the, the more difficult problems that we do in our work. And uh, habits are a wonderful, wonderful thing. So, if we develop unhealthy thought patterns and habit patterns, why? What does God do to the people who refuse to use their talents for Him? Well, in Hosea 4.17, it says, Ephraim is joined to his idols. 
leave him alone. Let him go. There's nothing we can do. And in Romans chapter 1, of course, it says in verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And why does this wrath come? And you'll notice this process here. These people, all of us have been given abilities. All of us have been given the capacity to think, to reason, to weigh things out, to draw conclusions, to have self-governance to make decisions over yourself. But if you don't use these things in healthy ways, if you reject the truth about God, it says, if you, uh, if you knew God but neither glorified Him nor gave thanks to Him, if you instead made images with your own hands and worshipped those things instead, it says in verse 24, therefore God gave them over or gave them up to the sinful desires of their own hearts. And they began practicing all these destructive and debasing practices. And in verse 26 it says, therefore, because of this, God gave them up. And in verse 28, furthermore, since they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over. In other words, he let them form their brain neural circuits the way their habit patterns and their free will choices were doing. And, and what happened is, they, their minds became depraved. They became foolish. They became darkened. And if we persist in this long enough, we actually destroy the very brain circuits, mental faculties that are sensitive to truth and love. And we can't be reached. We're, we're spiritually blind, if you were. And so this is why, if we bury our talents over time and our abilities, we lose them. Yes? In verse 25, this is exchange truth for a lie. There you go. Exchange truth for a lie. And if you hold to a lie, it's damaging. Yes? Would it be, uh, would it be important or worthwhile to know how much talent is worth? How much a talent is worth? A talent in the Bible times was about $1,000, I think. It's how much a man can carry. So that's why in the prophet Naaman was he was healed. Servants were required to carry the talents that were given to Elisha. So it's a large a large amount. And if you look in your various lexicons, it's really culturally culture to culture. There's a lot wide variation in what a talent was. Some of the cultures then had, had certain amounts. They say in the Jewish culture at the time of Christ that a talent of gold weighed um, 91 pounds. 91 pounds of gold. No, I take that back. 91 kilograms of gold. 200 pounds is what it was. 91 kilograms, 200 pounds of gold. Whereas a talent of silver was 100 pounds. <laughs> so so if, you, if you receive the talent and, and you work that much, wouldn't it be important to, to think of it in that concept? I think that when you say, or it said in serious business, you get thrown out for not investing your talents. You didn't realize how much your talents were worth in the first place, which I'm sure everybody back in the day did. And how about people today, and when we talk about the talents that are not monetary talents, do you know people that don't realize how much the abilities they have are worth? And they don't invest them. Do you have young people that, uh, that have incredible gifts, but they, they won't, won't develop those gifts? I know my, my teachers at CA really worried about me. <laughs> now, if you, if you find my English teacher t- today, she will, she will tell you how shocked she is. Because um, I shouldn't even tell you my grades in high school English. But th- just say they, they, were, they were dandy. Okay? <laughs> okay? And, uh, and my... Uh, and my English teacher was quite concerned I was wasting my talents. And, uh, 
but the Lord has a way to work with us. And, and over the course of time, I began to invest, invest those talents and, and things develop. But, but uh, you know, we can see somebody squandering. And if I wouldn't have invested those talents later, I, they would have been, I think, squandered. So, um, Monday's lesson. Somebody read the second paragraph. It starts out, In today's stressful... In today's stressful world, the example of Jesus is a refreshing evidence worth imitating. Jesus worked hard and was fully committed to his mission, but he made sure that he did not miss the blessings of the Sabbath. The gospel made it abundantly clear that he had time for his father, for his friends, for relaxation, and for a good meal. This type of time management, or rather time stewardship, will prove a blessing for all who practice it. When we think about time management and time stewardship, what kind of things interfere with your ability to manage your time wisely? The choices. The choices we make, sure, absolutely. Our choices determine what, what we do with our time. What kind of uh, things in life make it difficult for you to be a wise time manager? Proclivities towards laziness, our inherent human desire to be lazy. Do we, do we struggle with that, or am I the only one? My wife says I have a hard time with that. That's not really my personality. We'll go on vacation, and after 72 hours, I'm ready to go back home and go to work. I can't hardly stand it. <laughs> She's going like, we got a whole week, and you want to go to work? <laughs> but no, uh, it, it, when I'm at home, it's not that I always want to work. It's, I have my times, too. I think we do struggle with that. Applying ourselves, applying our abilities. Ah, that's what I was wondering. Does, does anybody ever struggle with overcommitment? <laughs> yes, George. So that's that's one of the helpful things we can do is have accountability friends to help us keep to keep us from being. Overextended. So my question would have been, is it okay to turn down requests for ministry? Is that okay to do? Does anybody ever struggle with somebody at the church or a mission group uh, calls and asks you uh, for an ability to volunteer? If you were to say no, you would feel guilty. Anybody struggle with that kind of thing? What, What happens to the person who doesn't take time off? Yeah. And we're going to come back to that theme. Think about the, the, the long-term consequence of doing that. Um, it says in the lesson that Christ did not miss the blessing of the Sabbath. Can tell me, somebody tell me what that was? See, what is the blessing of the Sabbath? Do you ever find that the idea, as stated in the quarterly, the blessings of the Sabbath is stated and assumed, but rarely defined? So how would you define the blessing of the Sabbath that Christ did not miss? Healing and helping others, which he could only do on the Sabbath. So if he healed and helped others on other days of the week, then he wouldn't have received the blessing of healing and helping others. So what is that blessing? And I'm not diminishing healing and helping others, not at all. But uh, I'm just pointing out, is it unique blessing that happens only on the Sabbath? Yes. And 
had done without me, and I then rest in God's renewal and communion with him. Okay. I, I like that. Coming to the end of it and being done, being done with our work. And then when Jesus spoke to them in John five sixteen through 18, after healing the man at the pool of Bethesda, the Jewish leaders confronted him. So because Jesus was doing the, these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but calling his God his father. So, was Jesus ending his work each week at the end of the week and resting on Sabbath, or was he working even more on Sabbath? Preachers work much harder on Sabbath. So, I like the concept of coming to the end of our work on Friday and resting on the Sabbath, but if we're in ministry, if we're in, 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 in work, doesn't Sabbath maybe the hardest, you should say, the hardest working day of the week for some? Yes? And coming from an academic perspective, it's nice for students and for all of us involved in them, when it comes to Sabbath, to put away the distractions of the other six days. So, what was the blessing? Do you think Jesus was less distracted on Sabbath than he was on other days of the week? I think more has to do with the focus, where our focus is. Because Jesus is focused on healing people, being lost, I'm not sure that applies to him also. But our focus is very different on Sabbath, even if we're pastors, even if we're still busy. Our focus is different, and I would ask you, and I like the idea of, of a focus that is more God-centered maybe, more, more centered on the eternal realities of the universe. Sabbath calls our attention to those relationships. But as you think about that, would it be God's plan that that Sabbath focus of our mindset, that we walk with a, with a heavenly perspective, should expand to our entire week? That wherever we are, we're walking with that heavenly perspective, that God-focused mindset even when we're about doing our duties. Yes? Uh, it's certainly been a blessing to me um, to realize that I can rest on the Sabbath in the fact that God is not a vicious judge and, 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 the, and the lies that have been told over the years. Um, I have the time to refocus on the fact that, that when God made the Sabbath, He rested His cases to who He was, um, that He was there for us, that the lies that Satan has been telling and has from the very beginning, said are not true. Well, I like that perspective, that when the Sabbath was brought into existence, it was in that context of allegations about the Father, about God, about His untrustworthiness, and God gave evidences, but now the Sabbath itself reveals something about God. Why does the Sabbath, what does the existence of a Sabbath, the Sabbath, tell us about God? Does it tell us anything about him that in the context of, of allegations that he's a power monger, that he, he doesn't give his creatures real freedom, that if you don't do things his way, he'll kill you? Uh, in, the, in the context of these allegations, what does it say about God that he, at the end of creation week, creates the Sabbath? It encouraged reflection and investigation and thought about what's Yes, it, its very existence reveals that God's character is one of, of truth love and freedom that he gives us he doesn't use power to coerce or threaten and then do you see Christ living that principle each week even on the Sabbath showing on the Sabbath truth revealed in love and then leaving people free living out what it looks like well if we continue this thought if the last paragraph on our lesson uh, in, in the same day here it says that 
God has the first claim on our time, we manifest this, this claim on our time in our keeping of the Sabbath and our daily time for prayer and worship. Does this mean that all those who observe the Sabbath are manifesting that God is first in their lives? What about those who put Christ on the cross? Why did they want him down by sunset? So they could observe the Sabbath. Well, then as Sabbath observers, he had to be first in their life, right? No. Did you have a comment? Well, I was just going to say, I think what the Sabbath does is it gives us the opportunity to reevaluate the big picture of our lives on a periodic basis because we, we get caught up in the details and the um, daily routines, and each Sabbath we pull back from that. And we get a chance to look at the big picture. Okay, how did what I do on Sunday contribute to? My role as a, as a daughter of God was, you know, what's the balance back in my life? I like that. I think that's exactly one of the main purposes of the Sabbath, for time of reflection, as we talked about. Reflection of what's happening in the cosmos, what's happening in our lives, how we're fitting in, what responses we're making. I like that. Yes? I had a science teacher who once told me this. He's like, okay, I'm telling you the big picture today. I'm telling you the general audience today. He's like, now these are the hooks. I'll get a hook in your brain. Overnight, your brain can start putting those hooks up. And tomorrow, I'll tell you the rest of it. You'll figure it all out. Sabbath for me is my reset day. Sabbath is my day when my the hooks, you know, they got up and now everything's processing through. Because our brains can't do it when we're running all the time. Yeah, I like that. That's nice. That's, and I think that's exactly. And you notice at the end of um, Passion Week, as Christ uh, completes his mission on earth, uh, not only providing evidence, but achieving what was necessary, rather than immediate resurrection and going into heaven, which he could have done. He rested over the Sabbath because what would have happened in heaven if Christ died and two hours later, boom, he's up in heaven? What, what's going on in heaven now? Celebration, Celebration party time. Okay? But with Christ in the tomb, what's the entire universe doing? Thinking. Weighing. So exactly what you say. It's those times to really process over and take time aside and think. Take, take, take time out of the busyness, as was said. So back on the question then about the, what, the, what the paragraph said, that God has first claim on our time. We manifest this in our keeping of the Sabbath and our daily time for prayer and worship. Um, Today, does that mean today that if somebody is a Sabbath observer, that God is automatically first in their life? If someone doesn't keep the Sabbath, they're not a Sabbath observer, does that mean God is not first in their life? So what do you think about the idea that what day one worships upon is the best evidence to determine whether someone has God first in their life or not? Is that a good barometer to test? Ah, what their life is like. What are the dangers of using the, the day one worship zone as a barometer to tell whether God is first in your life or not? What's the danger of that? Okay, so it leads to spiritual pride, Phariseeism, okay, elitism, judgmentalism. Yes, George. Yeah, to the Sabbath, we're also vulnerable, but we're never going to use it to judge others that haven't been 
exposed to or convinced does uh, so what we just talked about that, that it's not a very good barometer to tell whether somebody's got God first in their life or not. Does that therefore then mean that it's inconsequential which day what one worships on? It doesn't really matter, or is is it important? Is the Sabbath important? So why does the day of worship matter? What difference does it actually make? It makes a difference because of what each day represents. The Sabbath only represents that time set aside, that freedom to think and to choose, to reflect, to all the symbolism, you know, the symbolism that God's given us and the evidence throughout creation and the history of this mess. Could everybody hear her? Okay, she said, it, it makes a difference in what the days actually represent. And the Sabbath represents freedom, freedom to think, all the evidence God has provided, His character of love, all embodied in the Sabbath. It's very interesting. She's 100% right. But what has the devil done to the Sabbath? How is the Sabbath viewed in, in, in much of Christianity? I think it's a burden. A burden? A work? Legalistic? And how are, how are Adventists often looked at by evangelicals? Legalistic. Legalistic rules, no freedom, you're under the law. Well, I think first they think of their day as uh, it depends on who you talk to. Um, some misconstrue that. Most of them will tell you, though, they worship on the Lord's Day, and that Saturday is the Sabbath and Sunday is the Lord's Day, and they contrive that, or yeah, contrive is the right word, contrive that out of uh, Revelation, where um, John said he was in vision on the Lord's Day, and they assume, therefore, that was a Sunday, but it's not actually stated anywhere. So they call most most of them, but then they take and tried to drive. And what's what's happening in evangelical thought in the last ten fifteen years is an evolution of Sabbath to the idea that Sabbath is no longer a, a tied to a specific day of the week. It is actually an institution, an institutional experience that can be experienced on any day of the week as long as you take twenty four hours aside. You can get the Sabbath blessing. So they've reached out to take the Sabbath blessing that they've realized is taught powerfully in scripture, and they've taken that and applied it to any day they want as long as we apply the same rules to the Sabbath as we do to any other day of the week. The same principles to the Sabbath, I should say. He says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days shall thou labor. Sure. And so the point is, does it matter? Does it make a difference? And the the suggestion here is, if we put it in the context, and context is everything, uh, context of creation week, because when did the Sabbath come into existence? The Sabbath was not always in existence in eternity past. There's no biblical or inspired evidence that there was a Sabbath before creation of this planet. People assume it. There's a lot of assumptions made, but you can't find inspiration that says that. The Sabbath was created at the end of creation week of this planet. So, what, if we go into the context, you're an angel watching God create, terraform planet Earth. What does day one of, this, of creation week of planet Earth tell you about God? Day two, day three, day four, five, and six, what do we learn about God? He's powerful. What do we learn about God on day seven? Oh, you see? We learn the true nature of God, his character, on day seven. And this is why Satan hates the Sabbath. And this is why he wants us to forget the Sabbath. We don't want to remember that God is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving. God gives freedom to his creatures. Satan wants us to see God as only powerful. 
Because when we see him as powerful, then we're afraid of him. But perfect love casts out all fear. We are not to be afraid of him. Yes? There are many religious groups who want to represent their beliefs in some outward manner. They do dress or some kind of behavior. But the Sabbath is something that if you know a Sabbath keeper, you can never miss that this person keeps the Sabbath. It always is a continual yes, and- witness of that God is <coughs> I will sacrifice my job. And Caiaphas and Annas and all those who put Christ on the cross were wanting to make sure the world knew that God was most important in their life. That's true. I mean, I hear you. And there's truth in what you're saying. But there's also the the other version. And the other version is, is the Sabbath when rightly understood and experienced a tremendous blessing? Can the Sabbath be a cursing? Yes. Okay? And the Jews made it into a cursing. Satan has taken every one of God's blessings. I'll give you another example. Marriage, experienced as God designed it, is it a blessing? Can marriage be a cursing? Oh yeah, I heard some yeses. Yes. Okay. Yes, because if marriage functions under Satan's principles... Principles of selfishness, principles of totalitarian control. God demands uh, seeking one's own way, seeking to exploit your spouse and so forth. Marriage becomes horrible. So the Sabbath, which was given to be a blessing, Satan is perverted. And he makes it a system of rules, a system of arbitrary test of obedience, a system of legalistic enactments, a system of works that you must, uh, and all the thou shalt nots on the Sabbath. It's not a day of freedom. It's a day that's most restricted of all days of the week. The biggest burden and the biggest stress of the week is, here comes the Sabbath and all the things I can't do. That is not the blessing of Sabbath. That's Satan's perversion of the Sabbath. We need to experience it as God designed it, which was in the context of the revelation of his character of love. Let's go into Tuesday's lesson, because there was actually some really powerful stuff in Tuesday's lesson. From the first paragraph in Tuesday's lesson, it says, In the secular world, most people regard their bodies as their own property. They have total say over what happens to it. This applies not only to a vast number of women who claim that they should be free to decide whether or not they will have an abortion, but also to all who feel that they have the right to harm their bodies by the use of illegal substances or by eating large quantities of junk food or by having sexual relationships with as many partners as they choose. Jews. And the lesson suggests we read 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20. It says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. What do you think the lesson is suggesting in its paragraph? What message do you take from the paragraph out of the lesson? Yes, George. One thing here I think is really exciting that shows... Yeah, you know, we're responsible for our body being God's temple. But, you know, we have good news is that someday I'm as Christians, you know, hey, how God can deal with us? Or women who do get in crisis and think they need to have an abortion and maybe have had some in the past. It's exciting that God says, hey, you know, statistically that post abortion syndrome is so common and that people don't handle that well when they make those choices. George, don't go there. Uh, I think we need to, Tim. Post abortion syndrome is, is not real. Uh, let's talk about post-abortion syndrome. You brought it up. Let's talk about it. It is an artificial syndrome imposed upon vulnerable women 
who don't know how to think for themselves, who have believed a falsehood and a distortion about what's happening within them. And because they believe a lie, they experience the syndrome. If they believe the truth, they would be set free. Now, I'll give you an example. You have a grandma who is 90 years old. She's had a major stroke. She's on a ventilator. And the doctor comes and asks, says she's brain dead. There's nothing we can do. Can we remove the ventilator? If you believe that if removing the ventilator is nothing more than letting nature take its course, that you're doing no harm, just removing an artificial thing that shouldn't be there in the first place, and grandma dies, or if you believe that if you remove the ventilator, you will be murdering your grandmother, can you remove the ventilator with equal consequence with both beliefs? Or if you believe you're murdering your grandmother and you do it, will you then suffer a post-grandmother ventilation removal syndrome? Even though you're not murdering her, if you believe you have, you will feel guilt, you will have all this trauma, you will have all this terrible psychological cascade of events. Yes, you've seen it. Not because it's real, but because people believe lies about what's happening. And they believe lies because Christians have not boldly stood up and told the truth. And and if you want to know the history of the whole anti-abortion situation, it comes from Catholicism. Catholics believe that at conception, an immortal soul is, is created in the womb of a woman at conception, an immortal soul. That immortal soul is condemned to hell. It's, it's, our, our natural state is condemnation to eternal hell unless we get baptism at birth or last rites by a priest, which will then save our souls and send us to heaven. So with those beliefs linked together, when a woman becomes pregnant and has an abortion, if there's not a priest to do last rites over the fetus, then hell is being filled with immortal souls that will torment in hell forever. This is where the origins of the anti-abortion movement came from. They don't promote it this way, and what they've done instead is they've, they've taken the, the approach of promoting, let's protect innocent life. And so evangelicals have jumped on board with this, let's protect innocent life. Well, the reason that this, this debate will never be reconciled is because it is absolutely godly to protect innocent life. We should be promoters of, in, of protection of innocent life. That should be our position. But we should never use Satan's methods to do it. And Satan's methods are the methods of coercion and force and the removal of freedom. And if you look at the cross, when the only innocent life ever to be on planet Earth was on the cross and God had the decision, what do we do? Do we protect innocent life or do we leave man free to take innocent life? What did God do? He left man free. We promote life in every possible way we can, but we stop short of Satan's method of coercion and removal of freedom. I'm not saying we have to legislate. I'm not saying their methods are necessarily right. I think as Adams, Christians have such a powerful insight on God that we can go through and win people's hearts. You know, Christianity changed Rome. It wasn't the Roman government. It was Christianity came through. Beautifully said. The whole Christian abortion movement, in my view, is a means to divert the energies of the church from converting hearts and minds to Christ to politicizing the church and using the energies of the church for political means. And you can say the majority is, you know, but we're the remnant in many areas, and we can't be remnant even in this area, and say, hey guys, we don't need the government to do this. And granted, look at the partial birth abortion, something that is pretty sad. And if you say there's some things you can't take life in certain instances, so... Let's go back to what the lesson was having us talk about, and that is the question of whether your body is your own or not, and whether you have the right to make that decision over your body or not. The lesson would imply that you don't. 
Do you agree that's the implication of the lesson, that you don't have the right to make those decisions? Well, even in the paragraph from Paul, the apostle, who says, your body is not your own, it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We read that paragraph right there in 1 Corinthians 6.19. So after the apostle says that it's not your own, you're bought with a price, who then does the apostle, in the inspired record, give the authority and responsibility to, to govern your body? He gives it to you. He says, therefore, govern your body in this way. So even though you're not your own, you're bought with a price, it's still your responsibility to make the decision over what happens with your body. Isn't that right? Yes. Now, this just because it's your responsibility and you've been given that authority, does that suddenly suspend the laws of health? No. But if some take the position that God is our master, he's bought us with a price, we're his property, we are now, his, we are now owned by him, and therefore he is the one who should dictate our decisions in this regard, I would refer you to Luke 4, 18 and 19. Jesus speaking. But the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. Or John 8, 34 through 36. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the, master's, in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Or Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from law, sin, and death. Does God want us to be free? Does the slave master have the right to set his slaves free? So does God want us to be in a slave master relationship with him, or does he want us to free us from all slavery and set us genuinely free? What is the last fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? When the Holy Spirit comes into our life and he works in us to heal, transform, remove sinfulness and wickedness from our heart, we get certain traits of character, patience, peace, kindness, love, gentleness, and... Wait a minute. How can that be if we're a slave and the master's in control? No, the master doesn't want to be in control of us. Why? What would happen if the master took control of your brain? Say that louder. You'd be a robot and what's immediately destroyed? Love. Love Love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. And so it's true Christ bought us with a price. There's no question about it. There's no question he paid a high price to redeem us, to save us. But he takes what he's done and gives us freedom with it. If we violate that freedom, if we violate that freedom, and we go and choose to shoot our, our arms up with drugs... Does God send an angel from heaven to ruin our brain cells? If we drink a fifth of vodka every day, will God send an angel to destroy our liver? If you eat Big Macs and fries every day, will God make you obese and diabetic and give you metabolic syndrome? No, you're free to do all that stuff. Is there a price to pay if you do? Yes. Will God love you less if you do? Will God love you more if you don't? Will you be as useful in God's cause if you abuse your body? No, and I want to point this out. The person who violates God's methods, his principles, his laws, both the laws of this moral laws and spiritual laws and physical laws, enslave themselves. The person who is morbidly obese is not as free as a person of normal weight. Just think it through for with me. A person who is morbidly obese cannot engage in life to the fullest as a person who is normal weight. A person who has severe cardiac disease and can only take three steps before they get short of breath and have to be on oxygen, they are not as free 
as a person who has good health. Is that not right? Okay? People who are ridden with guilt because of destructive lifestyles, they're not as free as people who have clear consciences, are they? You see, our, our sins and our violations of the laws that God designed the universe to operate upon cast chains about us and enslave us and tie us down. Christ came to set us free from that so we can be free to live our lives to the fullest. We can have that abundant life. Yes? We all love people who are enslaved by ideas of health that strip them severely and rule their lives and make them miserable. Yes, exactly. Slaves of what, do you say? Good health laws. Oh, slaves of good health laws, too. Yes, slaves of, you know, you've heard the the few Adventists, I'm sure you've known some. I'm going to keep the health message even if it kills me. (laughs) Yeah. You you know, you missed the whole point there. That's true. We can become slaves of that. Which which They're not slaves of the, the, the violations of the physical health laws. They're slaves of violation of the spiritual health laws. They live in fear rather than living in love. They're so afraid that they might put something wrong in their body that will get them on the outs with God that they can't possibly do that. It could cause their eternal loss and, and of salvation. So they, they live in fear. They don't live in love. They're still a slave. Is that not right? Then what is Paul talking about in Romans 6, 16 through 23? He says, Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or, obe- or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form, the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put, now notice the next words. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer parts of your body to slavery, to, uh, to impurity, and to every increasing wickedness, so now offer them to the slavery of righteousness. See, Paul uses this language of slavery because he has to speak in human terms because we're weak and we don't really get it. And so he's talking to children, children who, who need to, to obey the rules because they don't know the teachings about righteousness. But then the idea that your body is not your own was also in the text. You were bought with a price. Your body is not your own. Um, right after Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, we go, because there's no chapter and verse divisions, Paul's writing a continuous thought. So we go right into chapter 7, 1 through 6. And it's just a continuation of that thought. He goes, now for matters you wrote me about, it is, not good, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except for mutual consent and then for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. Well, does this give any additional insight that your body is not your own? It's a continuation of you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Now in marriage, your body is not your own. So does that mean if in marriage, if your body is not your own, that your spouse is in governance of your body? Does it mean that your spouse determines what you do with your body? Or does it mean that when you gave yourself in marriage, you gave your spouse freedom to you, the whole person, and access to your body, and you promise to honor your spouse with your entire self, including honoring your spouse with your body? 
Is that what it means? But who still decides, even in that context, to fulfill the promise? Who still remains in governance of your body? You do. So how is this connected to the body being a temple for the Holy Spirit? That we are not our own. How is that connected? Jesus, he gave I like that. Who determines whether you will be a temple of the Holy Spirit or not? Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Anyone who opens the door, he will come in and sup with him. You notice it doesn't say that Jesus stands at the door with a battering ram and he's going to smash it down and come in anyway. No. Who decides whether the door to your heart opens? Isn't this the same type of teaching at the marriage relationship? Who decides whether your spouse comes into your heart or not? Yes? Well, I like what you said. We are a temple. But my question was, who determines whether you're a temple for the Holy Spirit? You, know, you, don't, you don't have a decision whether you're a temple or not. You were created as a temple. The question is whether you will be a temple for the Holy Spirit, or if you read in Revelation, those who value the lie rather than the truth are called the synagogue of Satan. And if you read in Thessalonians, it says that the, little, the man of sin, it says, the only way to confusion, the end will not come until the man of sin arises, that man of perdition who opposes everything that's godly and sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, which temple was that? Did the man of sin, after Christ's ascension into heaven, go up into heaven and kick God off his throne in his temple in heaven and sit down on his heavenly throne? No. So which temple is Paul talking about here? The temple of our hearts. So yes, you are a temple. But you have the decision to make. Will you be a temple for the man of sin to sit in, to be a synagogue of Satan? Or will you be a temple for the Holy Spirit? So I like it. You're a temple. But isn't it our choice which one is going to be? Yeah. Isn't that a powerful thought? Yeah. Yes. Well, we talked about, we mentioned that with the husband and wife, that your body's not your own, and you're giving access. Well, then if our bodies are our own, we're giving Holy Spirit access to our body and to our life. That's right. It's beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, but it's a, it's a daily voluntary. The Holy Spirit will never. It's every day He's knocking on the door. Every day he's there. Every day he wants to fellowship with you. Every day the Holy Spirit wants to dwell in your heart and mind. And, and neurobiologically, if you allow the Holy Spirit in, if you meditate and worship on a God of love, the prefrontal cortex neural circuits grow stronger. The fear circuits of your brain grow weaker. You actually have lower heart rate, lower blood pressure, lower catecholamine and stress hormone levels through your body. You have better physical health. You actually live longer on this earth right now. But if you conversely... Uh, take the false concept of God. You have the man of sin, so you have this distorted image of God, an authoritarian, a punitive God, a punishing God. The prefrontal cortex doesn't grow stronger. The fear circuits grow stronger. You have more worry, more anxiety, more stress, worse health. You die at a younger age. Yes? It's so amazing. You see this. God so clearly the pair of lost point, lost sheep, lost son. And some people never accept God. They see your friend, they have this image. 
other on a rock slam, you get sort of attached to animals, but then maybe never develop into the sun. There's sons that come and go, you know, the particle sun. So I think it's whether they remain in the book, the, the angels, how long were they got simple, and then they chose away from them. Some people hear the gospel and are accepted, others take it like demons and fall away. And then there's like Peter back and forth. Well, there's another aspect of this whole thing. You as an individual are a temple for the Holy Spirit. But God is also building His temple. He is building His temple, the foundation of the apostles, Christ, the chief cornerstone. Don't you know that ye are living stones built into a house of God? And as we come together in a like-minded, unity, hearts and minds of believers, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we are built into a house of God, the eternal temple for God. And that is something He's working to. And we have the privilege of becoming... Um, part of God's eternal house. In the 23rd Psalm, as God has his way with our life and, and it ends up, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Revelation, it says that we will be a pillar in the temple of God. Never will we leave it. You mean we're, we're imprisoned in that building in heaven forever? No. We actually become part of the building for God. He, it's a living temple constructed of the intelligent beings of the entire universe who all have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. It's a phenomenal, beautiful thing. And, and I would just like to say in, in Wednesday's lesson that the owner delegates. He has the right to, to... And does not Christ say he's going to share his throne with us? That we're going to reign on thrones with Christ? Yes, he's the... And, and if you think about God as owner, oftentimes the lesson uses language as God is our, our owner. But use these words instead. He's our rightful owner. Does rightful owner sound different than owner? Yes, because rightful owner says, what does the rightful owner do with us? He sets us free. That's what the rightful owner does. He doesn't enslave us. And he shares his authority with us. He humbled himself and became a a servant to redeem us and heal us. That's what our rightful owner does. And then we, we love him for it. And we're one to trust for it. And we go, man, that's the kind of owner I can always give my heart to. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such extreme lengths to reach us. We love your principles of truth, presented in love, leaving people free. Fill our hearts with your spirit. Let us have discerning wisdom to see through the subtle distortions that that bombard us in society. Help us to be practitioners of your character, that we can be those who go out promoting your principles of love, promoting to protect the innocent, promoting to build up, but always within the bounds of your laws of freedom, never working to coerce, to pressure, to control another, but to win in in truth, we pray in your holy name. Amen.